So the Harris Center is based within the Faculty of Philosophy and is uh, devoted to uh, to doing research in practical or applied ethics, as the name uh, suggests. It's directed by uh, Julian Savalescu, who holds the chair in uh, practical ethics, and currently includes 24 other uh, academic staff members, as well as five doctoral students. Uh, we have a very broad uh, remit, uh, which is basically just to uh, bring philosophical uh, analysis to bear on practically important uh, ethical questions, questions about how we ought to live, how society ought to be arranged, and so on. And as you might uh, suspect, given that broad remit, we work on a fairly diverse range of topics, some of which are listed on this slide. Um, historically, we've had quite a strong focus on ethical issues raised by medicine and the life sciences, uh, but we've also worked in other areas like uh, criminal justice, uh, criminal justice ethics, uh, internet ethics, and uh, military ethics. Okay, so, um, so several of our projects uh, uh, bring philosophy to bear on questions in AI ethics. And I, what I want to do in the, in the few minutes that I have left is just to uh, briefly mention some of these. I won't be able to cover all of them just by way of illustrating some of the ways in which we think, or some of the areas in which we think uh, philosophical ethics might have something to say uh, about uh, AI ethics, and then Carissa is going to go into a bit more detail about exactly how philosophy can contribute to um, debates about uh, AI ethics. Okay, so the first uh, strand of uh, research that I wanted to mention is some work that uh, Julian Savalescu and Guy Kahane are doing, along with uh, Chris Gingell from Melbourne University, uh, on uh, the role of public preferences in informing the development of ethical algorithms. Uh, so as you're probably all aware, one of the challenges uh, posed by, for example, autonomous vehicles is, um, is that of specifying how these vehicles should respond when posed with what look like ethical dilemmas. So say a choice between sacrificing an occupant of the vehicle uh, and sacrificing uh, a pedestrian, or the choice between running over an adult or running over a child. So one uh, natural response to this problem has been to kind of go out into the world and collect lots of data about what the public think about how autonomous vehicles should respond to these kinds of situations. And actually quite a lot of that work uh, has already been done. Um, but what's, uh, what's not at all obvious is what we should be doing with the data that we're getting out of this empirical research, the, the social scientific data about what public, the public preferences actually are. Because it certainly doesn't seem to be the case that we should just kind of unthinkingly implement the public will in this kind of area. So uh, suppose in a particular society that uh, most people thought that autonomous vehicles should prioritize saving the lives of white people over others. Clearly, it wouldn't follow that that's what we should uh, program uh, autonomous vehicles to do. But on the other hand, it does seem plausible that at least some public attitudes should play some role in informing the de design of these algorithms. Uh, so what Julian, uh, Guy, and Chris are thinking about is exactly uh, what that role should be. Um, and just to kind of cut straight to one of their uh, conclusions, one of their proposals, probably the, the most controversial proposal, uh, has been that uh, public preferences should be put through a kind of philosophical filter before being uh, uh, built into algorithms. So we should first check that these preferences uh, are actually consistent with at least some uh, plausible and widely held uh, philosophical ethical theories, and only preferences that make it through this kind of filter, what they call laundered preferences, uh, should be uh, fed into algorithm design. Okay, so the second uh, strand of our research uh, that I wanted to mention 
um, is, is a program that I'm leading on the ethics of predicting and influencing behavior, uh, supported by the Wellcome Trust and the ERC. So this work has intersected with AI ethics uh, in, in a few places. One of these is on the topic of uh, crime prediction, where we've been doing some work with colleagues in the Department of Psychiatry to try to make some, I guess, practical suggestions about how we could uh, improve the kinds of crime prediction algorithms that are increasingly being used both in criminal justice uh, and in forensic psychiatry. So, and by improve, I mean here, um, making more accurate, but also mitigating some of the ethical concerns about um, bias uh, uh, and unfairness. Uh, but actually, the, the strand of our research that I wanted to uh, go into a little bit more detail about is some work that we're doing on the idea of a right to mental integrity, because I think this is an interesting case of an area where um, th existing thinking in medical ethics might have something of relevance to contribute to, uh, to AI ethics. So it's, it's very widely accepted, um, especially in medical ethics, but also elsewhere, uh, that we all possess something like a right to bodily integrity, a right against interference with our bodies. So this right would be infringed uh, if someone physically assaults you, uh, but it would also be infringed, for example, if a medical professional performed a medical procedure on you without your consent. So the question that we're interested in is whether there might be an analogous right to mental integrity. So that would be a right against uh, interference with your mind rather than your body. Um, and I mean, this is a question that hasn't been much discussed either in philosophy or law, but we think it's going to be very relevant to medical ethics because um, quite a few medical interventions look like they might infringe something like a right to mental integrity. Uh, perhaps the most obvious example here would be the use of compulsory psychiatric interventions uh, on patients who have been sectioned under the Mental Health Act. Um, but we think this uh, question about mental integrity is also going to be relevant to non-medical interventions um, and interventions that are not at all uh, physically invasive. And I think one of the most uh, interesting uh, and important examples here would be what we might call AI-assisted manipulation. So suppose that an online platform, something like Facebook, um, de develops and deploys an artificial intelligence that can identify the psychological weaknesses of all of its users and almost perfectly target them with, uh, with uh, content that will maximize the length of time that they spend on the platform and uh, sort of maximally strengthen their desire to keep habitually checking that platform. It seems reasonable to ask whether we could think of this technology as infringing a right to mental integrity. Uh, and we think that the answer to this question is going to depend on exactly how you understand that right. Uh, what kind of uh, philosophical basis you think that it has, but at least on some plausible accounts of the right to mental integrity that, that we're considering, um, it seems that, uh, that AI-based manipulation could actually infringe the right to mental integrity in, in just the same way as could, for example, compulsory psychiatric interventions, which might suggest that we should be uh, regulating AI-based manipulation and other similar forms of manipulation much more stringently, perhaps uh, a bit more closely to how we currently regulate psychiatry. Uh, the, the third and final example that I wanted to say something about is the work of uh, Hannah Meslin and Stephen Rainey on ethical issues raised by the use of neuroprosthetics for decoding speech. So this is, this is the philosophical part of a large multidisciplinary project uh, called BrainCom, which is, uh, which is seeking to develop uh, neuroprostheses or brain computer interfaces uh, that could allow individuals who have lost the ability to speak to uh, communicate. So these devices would work by uh, 
by detecting brain signals, converting them into synthesized speech uh, with the mediation of an uh, AI language model. And that AI language model would do a significant amount of predicting and rephrasing in order to allow the, the speaker to speak at a kind of ordinary conversational pace and with more or less ordinary uh, fluency. So one of the ethical issues here concerns the extent to which um, we could hold people responsible for the utterances that they might make via a device like this. So ordinarily, we do hold people responsible for their speech acts. If someone says something racist or offensive, we tend to think that uh, they can be blamed for that. And that seems to presuppose that they're responsible for what they've said. Um, if I promise to do something, you'll probably think that I'm bound by that promise. And again, that seems to presuppose that I'm responsible for what I said uh, when I made the promise. But uh, one question is, to what extent would those kinds of responsibility assignments carry over to uh, cases involving uh, neuroprostheses of this sort, given that in these cases there might be a much more significant gap between the kind of mental act of intending or attempting to say something uh, and the actual utterance that gets produced. So how does the mediation of an artificial intelligence in this kind of system uh, affect the responsibility of the speaker for the, for the utterance? Um, how might the nature of the AI make a difference to assignments of responsibility? These are the kinds of questions that Stephen and, and Hannah are addressing. And again, to kind of briefly cut to one of the conclusions, they're arguing that uh, in many of these cases, the mediation of the artificial intelligence could uh, significantly diminish the responsibility of the speaker, uh, and in a way that might require us to sort of significantly think some of our ethical norms regarding speech and conversation. Okay, so those are some of the uh, uh, sort of AI-relevant areas on which the Harris Centre is working. There are others as well. Um, Mike Robillard, a military ethicist um, in the centre, has been working on critiquing some of the existing debate about autonomous weapon systems or killer robots. Um, uh, one of our DEFL students, Abhishek Mishra, is uh, working on the extent to which we might need to revise some of our uh, concepts like the standard of care and medical negligence in a world in which um, uh, healthcare professionals are relying heavily on machine learning classifiers. Um, but I'm going to stop there and hand over to uh, Carissa, who's going to uh, go into a bit more detail about some of the, the actual ways in which philosophy can kind of make progress on the types of topics that I've been talking about, and also to tell you about some of her research. Thanks. Thanks.